Today's sermon comes from Acts 16, 16 through 34. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And she kept doing, for, uh, and she, this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore their garments off and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundation of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. The film Amazing Grace chronicles William Wilberforce's endeavors to bring to an end the British transatlantic slave trade in the 19th century. And in the film, Wilberforce uh, visits one of his old friends and pastor, uh, John Newton. John Newton had been uh, the captain of one of these slave ships prior to his conversion to Christ. And Wilberforce visited him because he wanted him to share his account of being a slave ship captain. But Newton refused. And he refused because of the deep guilt and the deep shame and what he would call 20,000 ghosts that haunted him every day. But towards the end, when Wilberforce was nearing success in ending the slave trade, he visited Newton again. And by this time, Newton had agreed to share all of his records and experiences of being an owner and a captain of one of these slave ships. And he had lost sight in his eyes, but he said this to Wilberforce. You must use it. Names, records, 
shipwreckers, ports, people. Everything I remember is in here. Although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I'm a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. Now, every person in this room, to some degree, is haunted by a past. Haunted by people, maybe people you have sinned against or people who have sinned against you. Maybe you're haunted by injustice that's been committed against you or a loved one. Maybe you're haunted by some form of tragedy or suffering in your life. Maybe you're haunted by a very distorted and perverse religious upbringing. All of these people and all of these circumstances can exert great power over us. They can be very oppressive. And sometimes you don't even recognize the oppression that is there. The question becomes, how does the gospel of Jesus Christ free you from all those kinds of oppression? Well, first, we're going to explore the nature of oppression so that you might have your eyes open, maybe unpack for the very first time the ways in which you are or have been oppressed. The nature of oppression. What does it look like? What does oppression look like? It comes in all kinds of forms, but several of the forms of oppression are revealed in these conversion stories of this girl and of this jailer. The first type of oppression is a spiritual oppression. And we see this spiritual oppression through this demonic spirit that has possessed this girl. Verse 16, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. Now, the word for divination here is, in the original language of the New Testament, is actually python, python. It's, she was possessed by a spirit of python, and, and python was associated with the Greek god Apollo. And so what we have here is this girl who is by identification connected to this Greek God, but she's possessed by this spirit who is speaking the future for people or telling the future. That's why she's called a fortune teller. In the end of verse 16, that word fortune telling, the, the root word there is actually uh, comes from the word manic. So what you have here is this, this girl would go into what would be manic type of episodes where she would speak involuntary. She would utter phrases in words that were coming from this demonic spirit, but the Greeks saw it as coming from this voice of God. And so you can see why she was in very high demand. Because people that would want advice or counsel 
or people that would want to know what their future held could hear it or would turn to this girl who was possessed by this demonic spirit. And her owners were getting rich off her. Her owners were getting rich off her. What I want you to see is that this kind of spiritual oppression is alive and well today. And it's alive and well in really two forms. The first is a very subtle, under-the-radar form. We see it in what this girl is saying. As she follows Paul, this demonic spirit through her keeps repeating this phrase to everyone around Paul and his companions. Verse 17, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now, you hear that and go, this is odd. It sounds like this girl and the spirit through her is telling everyone to listen to Paul and follow Jesus. But when you unpack what's really going on in this phrase and the message it's communicating, it falls much more in line what we would expect to be the message of the devil. The phrase, most high God, was a phrase that the Greeks would use often to describe their gods. So this was a phrase that would communicate just generic, a generic God or a generic term for the God of your choosing or the God of the day. The word salvation, the way of salvation, that word was used by the Greeks to mean health or healing or rescue. So what you had here is this demonic spirit on the surface seeming to affirm Paul's message, the most high God, the way of salvation. But what was really happening is this message was being reduced to a generic spiritualism of a generic God that can meet your needs and help you when you have trouble. The devil masquerades as an angel of light, which means that the message of the devil oftentimes can very much mimic even the Christian message, but it'll twist it and turn it and it'll become misleading in how it's told. Years ago, two researchers with the National Study of Youth and Religion at the University of North Carolina conducted uh, a study. They interviewed over 3,000 teenagers to try to understand what is the religious belief system of the teenagers of our day. And they did their interviews. They summed it up. They wrote their findings in a book. And here's how they summed up the beliefs of teenagers. Number one, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Number two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and feel good about oneself. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And number five, good people go to heaven when they die. 
Now, they took this summary and labeled this belief system moralistic, therapeutic deism, which basically means that according to this view of God, if you live a good life, as the Bible commands, and you're kind to others, God will provide for you therapeutic benefits like happiness and self-esteem. But other than that, God's not very much involved in this world. At the core, it's a, it's a generic spiritualism. On the surface can seem enlightening, but in reality, it's deeply oppressive because the end of this kind of belief system is darkness and separation from God. The devil speaks in generalities. That's how he masquerades as an angel of light. The devil speaks in generalities. God speaks in absolute specifics and clarity about sin, repentance, and the salvation that has been accomplished by Jesus Christ. Understand that the the teenagers of our day, your children are growing up in this kind of environment. The, The predominant cultural, spiritual message is therapeutic, moralistic deism. And so the charge here is not to teach your kids a generic spiritualism, but to teach your kids the gospel of Jesus Christ and to help them discern. Sometimes you gotta look closely, but to discern messages that are generic. Generic spiritualism, that's the work of the devil and it's spiritually oppressive. The other form of spiritual oppression we see in this passage, so the the generic spiritualism is kind of under the radar, but the other form we see here is absolutely direct and in your face. Direct and in your face. And this is when we look at the owners of this girl. These owners were getting rich off her. She was a commodity. She was a commodity in their hands so they could receive financial gain. It's the modern day equivalent of human trafficking. This is a human trafficking situation that is rampant in our world, and it is rampant here in the city of Jacksonville. Human trafficking is alive and well. In fact, you would be surprised to know where one of the major hotspots of human trafficking is in this city. And that's the St. John's Town Center right across the street, where a person is turned into a commodity to bring someone else financial gain. It is dark, it is oppressive, it is a a work of the devil. And the issue here, which is very obvious in human trafficking, but the issue here is objectification. It's turning people into objects. That's what a commodity is, into objects for someone else's personal gain. And this is the work of the devil. The devil's work is objectification because what the devil wants or attempts to do is strip and destroy the image of God in a person and reduce them to an object. That's the work of the devil. Now, you may not be able to connect with human trafficking or it's something that you have never yourself been involved with or you don't know someone who has been rescued out of it. 
But I can tell you that objectification of people lands really close to home. It happens in corporate America all the time. It happens in marriages. It can happen in family. It can happen in relationships. It happens in the pornography business. So the question becomes, in what ways do you objectify people? In what ways do you treat people as though they are a commodity for your own personal gain? Or in what ways have you been objectified by people? In what ways have you been treated like a commodity? So the nature of oppression is spiritual. It's spiritual, but it's also cultural. Oppression can be cultural, and for this, we turn to the, the Philippian jailer and what happens to him. So Paul and Silas are arrested. They're beaten. They're put in jail. God sends an earthquake, opens the prison doors. And how does this jailer respond? Verse 27. When the jailer woke and saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Now, why was this jailer about to kill himself? Well, most likely, he was a retired Roman soldier, which means he had been raised and trained in the ideals of duty and discipline. He was responsible for the safekeeping of these inmates. And the consequence for him failing in his job, not keeping these inmates secure, losing the inmates, the consequence would have been public shame and humiliation in the form of first a beating and then public execution. So what we see here is that this jailer was willing to end his life to avoid shame. And you and I have no problem relating to that because you and I avoid shame at all costs. Now, this Roman soldier, this jailer, lived in an empire, Roman world, that was a shame-honor culture. And we often think shame, honor cultures in our world are usually, you know, Japan, places like that. Shame, honor culture is alive in the United States. Because you and I know well that we'll avoid shame at all costs. We live in a don't embarrass yourself culture. Years ago, Fox Network ran a game show called The Moment of Truth. And in this game show, they would take contestants, hook them up to a state-of-the-art lie detector test, and in private, ask them very exposing, shame-producing questions. They'd get all their answers, and then on the game show, these contestants would be asked the same questions, same series of questions, but in front of family members, spouses, co-workers, friends, 
And if they answered all the questions right, honestly, accurately, compared to what they gave on the lie detector test, if they answered them all correctly, the top prize was $500,000. This was one of those game shows where if they, they answered a certain amount, they'd get a certain amount of cash, and at any point, they could choose not to answer the question that was asked and walk away with a small amount of cash. How many people do you think won $500,000 over the life of this game show? One. One person. Even with that amount of money dangled in front of them, they avoided shame. And you and I do the same. At what cost are you avoiding shame? May not be your physical life, although maybe like this jailer, you have contemplated that in moments of, of potential deep shame. Is the cost of avoiding shame for you shallow relationships, no real friendships, no depth, no transparency, no genuineness, nobody really knows you, you're isolated on an island? At what cost are you avoiding shame? Because the avoidance of shame is deeply oppressing. It's oppressive. So we've looked at the nature of oppression. Let's turn now to freedom from oppression. Right? How does the gospel of Jesus Christ free you from all these kinds of oppression? I want you to see that the gospel reveals three truths that free you from oppression. The first is that the gospel frees you because it reveals the impotence or the powerlessness of the powers that oppress you. This story of the girl and the jailer is full of powers that are oppressing the girl and the jailer and attempting to stop Jesus, right? The powers are at play, and what you'll see is that those powers become weak and impotent in the presence of Jesus. So you start with the demonic spirit who's oppressing this girl. The demonic spirit is cast out by the simple command of Jesus. In the presence of Jesus, this demonic spirit is weak and impotent. You look at the intimidation tactics of the magistrates who take Paul and Silas and try to intimidate them. They beat them. They throw them in prison. There's an interesting detail. When they throw them in prison, they put them in stocks. You think, God, oh, that's just to keep them in prison. No, those stocks were in, intended to inflict pain, deep pain. And yet, beaten, thrown in prison, put in stocks that are inflicting deep pain, you would expect Paul and Silas to be cursing and groaning, but the spirit of Jesus in them causes them to pray and sing hymns at midnight in prison. Intimidation tactics. The intimidation and pain that is meant to try to silence them were impotent and weak in the presence of Jesus. I love one of the early church fathers in commenting on this passage. He says, the legs feel nothing in the stocks when the heart is in heaven. But then you go on to the Roman authorities, just the government that's in place 
that puts Paul and Silas in prison, and it was an unjust imprisonment. This was in, it was unjust. They didn't get a trial. And we see later, Paul's a Roman citizen. This was absolute mistreatment by the government, by Rome. And yet, Jesus sends an earthquake to open the prison doors. And even the power of this most powerful nation of Rome is weak and impotent in the presence of Jesus. The powers that are oppressing you are strong and overwhelming in your presence. But in the presence of Jesus, those same powers become weak and impotent. In the presence of the bully who bullied me in middle school, I won't go into detail, but in the presence of that bully, I was terrified. But when that bully and me were in the presence of our PE coach, who happened to be built like Arnold Schwarzenegger, The power of that bully was weak and impotent, and I wasn't terrified. When you feel intimidated and oppressed by people, by a circumstance, by a situation, whatever it may be, the answer is not to flex your muscles and intimidate back. No, you, you bring that person, you bring that situation, you bring that circumstance into the presence of Jesus. And you watch the power of whatever it is that oppresses be dismantled and turn weak. That's when you find freedom from oppression. So how does the gospel free you from oppression? That's the first truth, is it reveals the impotence of those powers that oppress you. But second, it reveals the healing power of Christ. The healing power of Christ. The conversion of this jailer is absolutely remarkable. It is remarkable. Remember, this is a retired Roman soldier. And after the earthquake comes and the doors of the prison open, we read in verse 29, the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, this is a hardened Roman soldier who now is trembling with fear. He fell down before Paul and Silas. This jailer was thoroughly shaken. Soul, body, absolutely shaken. No peace of mind. He's afraid. No sense of security. He is alone with a very threatening set of circumstances. Verse 30, he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? And I love the simplicity of Paul's answer. In verse 31, they said, believe in the Lord Jesus. You and your household, you'll be saved. Now, Paul would go on to explain the gospel more fully in verse 32. He had other words that he spoke. 
But the message to this jailer who is standing alone in his threatening circumstances, he's standing alone and he is terrified. Paul's answer is, turn to Jesus. Turn to Jesus. Bring all of your fear and your lack of peace of mind and your no sense of security and your undoneness. Bring it into the presence of Jesus and watch transformation happen. And that's what the jailer did. He turned to Jesus. He was baptized. Now, let me go back to the question. Or let me ask, why was this conversion so remarkable? Well, understand what happened to this jailer. He believed, he was baptized, and then verse 33 says something amazing. He washed Paul and Silas's wounds. Not too long ago, when Paul and Silas were delivered to this prison, he put the stocks on their feet, saw them wincing in pain, and loved every minute of it. This was a hardened Roman soldier. He loved seeing them in pain and them getting their just due. But then he meets Jesus. You'd say, well, I mean, you'd expect him. Maybe maybe a softening would be, hey, here's a bucket of water and a rag. Wash yourself. No, he washed their wounds because his wounds had been washed by Jesus. Wounded people wound. Wounded people wound. The bad news is that every person in this room has been wounded. You don't live in this world without being wounded in some way. Could have been this morning. Could have been this past week. Could have been 10 years ago. Maybe in your childhood. You and I are wounded. And when you stand alone in your wounds, you become angry. You become bitter. You become hard-hearted. And then out of that anger and bitterness and hard-heartedness, you wound others, and specifically you wound the person who has wounded you. But that can be through silent treatment. That can be through passive aggressiveness maybe outright slander, maybe physical harm, but you wound. Bring your wounds into the presence of Jesus. Bring your wounds into the presence of Jesus and he will wash them. And when he washes your wounds, you will find that anger, that bitterness, and that hard-heartedness melt away. Some of you have been recently wounded by someone. And you've got your heels in the ground. And you've got your arms crossed. And your heart is hard. And you are wounding that person back through silent treatment maybe passive-aggressively. Bring your heels in the ground and your crossed arms and your hard heart into the presence of Jesus. And when you do, he will wash you 
He will soften you, and you will watch your anger and bitterness turn into compassion and softness towards others, especially those who have wounded you. The gospel of Jesus Christ brings freedom from oppression. By revealing the impotence of the powers that oppress you, by bringing the healing of Jesus Christ to soften you, and finally, by revealing the healing power of Christ's body. Look what happens after this jailer is baptized. Verse 34. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. This jailer's house was attached to the prison, whether it was a you know, second floor or attached to the side of it. He gets baptized and he has a post-baptism celebration. He invites Paul and Silas and all the companions, his household, he sets food out. I mean, this was a good old-fashioned party. This is post-baptism celebration, celebrating his salvation, the salvation of his household. Do you see the pattern here in Acts 16? Lydia gets saved, and what does she do? Invites everyone to her house, celebrates. The Philippian jailer is saved, and what does he do? Invites everyone to his house to celebrate. At the end of Acts 16 and verse 40, after Paul and Silas are released from prison, the first thing they do is to go to Lydia's house, where this new church was now meeting. It was a house church. This is where worship was happening. And the first three members of this little church, you can't dial this up. You can't manufacture this. The first three members of this church are a wealthy businesswoman, successful businesswoman, a poor trafficked girl, and a hardened, crusty military vet. It doesn't get any different than that. Different generations, young and old, different socioeconomic status, different upbringings, all freed from various forms of oppression, washed by Jesus and worshiping together. Oppression wounds and then drives people into isolation. Christ heals and brings people together into community. The great documentary, The March of the Penguins, maybe you've seen it. It follows the emperor penguins of Antarctica on their long journey through the snow and ice up to 70 miles inland. And when they get to the, the mating grounds is where they end up inland or the, the breeding grounds, it's at that point that the males take responsibility for the eggs. And they override their competitive nature and form this team that's all bent around survival. And this documentary is narrated by Morgan Freeman. And Morgan Freeman is an amazing narrator. It's only he can do it. But there's this 
you know, point at which they've gotten to the breeding grounds and all the males are on their eggs and, and that the camera will pan from this close-up shot of a male penguin that's um, just uh, full of ice and ice-caked face and body, and then it'll back out and you see this kind of massive body, right, of penguins. And then this is what Freeman says in narrating. As the fathers settle onto their long wait at the breeding grounds, the temperature is now 80 degrees below zero. That's without taking into account the wind, which can blow 100 miles per hour. Though they can be aggressive during the rest of the year, at this time, the males are totally docile, a united and cooperative team. They brace against the storm by merging their thousand bodies into a single mass. They will take turns, each of them getting to spend some time near the center of their huddle where it's warmer. What a beautiful picture of the church. What a beautiful picture of the church people who have been freed from all kinds of oppression by Jesus. Wounds washed by the healing grace of Jesus and then standing together washing one another's wounds as an extension of his grace. May that beautiful picture be the reality here at East. Let's pray. Father, your grace is astounding. The personal way in which you have drawn us to your son, Jesus. The wounds that you have washed, Jesus, by becoming wounded on the cross. the shame and the guilt you've taken from us by taking it on yourself in the public humiliation of your execution. All that we could, also that we could be free, free from oppression. We're free from people, free from circumstances, free from situations because of your love, Jesus, and your washing. Father, as we have been washed by your Son, would we be those who wash one another as an extension of your grace through your Spirit? And may we be a community that stands together and that when there's some that need to move towards the center for more warmth, that that would happen when situations and circumstances hit life. Would we have eyes open, hearts open, soft towards each other? Father, I pray right now for some marriages in this room. There are some this morning whose heels are dug in, arms are crossed, heart is hard because they've been wounded. Father, by your spirit, would, they, would you draw them into the presence of your son that those wounds would be washed 
and that they would move towards the person who has wounded them with forgiveness and softness and compassion so that you can bring reconciliation by your spirit. Father, we respond now in no other way that we can but to worship you with our feeble voices, but our hearts that are turned to you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.